Okay, welcome to WTF Web3, where we separate the crypto utility from the bullshit. Today, we're going to talk about how to make Web3 better. We're going to talk about what it takes to be a developer in the blockchain ecosphere. Um, today, I have a guest that has worked on several different projects and excited to have him and talk about it. But first, my name is Chris Bruce. I'm a five-time venture back founder. I am a CEO and founder of a Web3 blockchain company called BlockChoy. Previously, I was at Helium. I've been in the space for some time with Web3 and crypto. Excited to see where it's going. Today, I have with me Noah Prince from the Helium Foundation. Before this, he was doing something with the Strata Protocol. Let me have him tell you all about himself. Go ahead, Noah. Hey, I'm uh, Noah Prince, currently the head of protocol engineering at Helium Foundation. I previously, before that, was doing my own startup on Solana called Strata Protocol. Um, and, you know, generally have been devving in the crypto space for about two years, which means I'm somewhat new compared to a lot of other people. But uh, it's been a fun two years. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it seems like um, all the times I've interacted with you, it seems like you've been around this this area for decades. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's a quick two years, I would assume. I've kind of been a lifelong learner. So crypto was super interesting because it's just like a fire hose of knowledge at first. You know, there's all this different terminology and all of this learning. But when you get down to it, it's actually not, not too, too complicated. And there's just a lot of interesting technical problems here. Yeah, ser serious technical problems. Um, and that's, <laughs> I think, the challenges are what, you know, draws a lot of us to it for sure, especially if you're technical. So there's never, you know, there's never a day that goes by that there isn't something exciting happening from collapses <laughs> to great highs. Uh, it's fantastic. But, but before that, what we like to do is we like to ask all of our guests, what does Web3 mean to you? Yeah. So I think, you know, if you talk to like the average user, right, they're going to tell you Web3 is just like, you know, web application that has like Wallet Connect, Connect MetaMask or Phantom. Uh, and then I can like do things like buy NFTs. But to me, like when you say web three, it's pretty ambitious, right? You're saying like this thing is going to subsume web two, like web two subsumed web one. Right. And so I think you have to separate like the technology, which is blockchain and generally like connect wallet is talking about blockchain with sort of the ethos here, which is a move towards decentralization, right? A move towards pushing the ownership to the people on the network as opposed to companies that are mining data and things like that, right? Because the technology itself is amazing, but with our current technology, it has limitations, right? You're talking Web2 has billions and billions of users, right? If you want to subsume Web2, you need to be able to handle the load of 2 billion users. And even Solana, which is like probably the fastest blockchain right now, is only doing like 8,000 transactions per second, right? And so you do have to sort of start to separate the technology from what the actual ethos is, which to me, Web3 is like Web2, but decentralized. Fantastic. I mean, that really is my definition as well. I really, you know, compare Web3 a little bit to Web1 because in Web1, we had a lot of people owning the servers that they ran their services on. A lot of the core infrastructure of the web was federated as opposed to decentralized, but people own it. And if you look Look at it today, even email as an example, which is still a federated type of system. Basically, Gmail has like 3 billion email accounts. So even that's becoming centralized. So it's kind of crazy. Uh, I loved your definition of it. I think that is spot on, which is really cool. And then coming back to, you know, 8,000 transactions per second, you know, that seems fantastic for a blockchain, but 
some of these web two developers will probably be like, oh, what? That's nothing. <laughs> so definitely some challenges in the space. And you know, it's very interesting to see how some of these protocols are, you know, working to solve some of these situations, which is really good. Yeah, I think it's um, so I, my background originally before I got into blockchain was in TradFi, I was working at a market maker out of Chicago doing big data infrastructure, the scale of Web2. I mean, we were processing terabytes of data a day, you know, the kind of things that you can only do if you can scale horizontally. And chain just isn't quite there yet. Um, it's also unclear to me whether or not it, you know, the actual part of processing transactions needs to be uh, horizontally scaled. Because, you know, it's only so often that you want to actually change ownership of an object. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think in, you know, an earlier podcast, we talked a little bit about this, which is, you know, there's a lot of data being generated. And, you know, systems like Solana pretty much are really good at maintaining a ledger, if you will. And then they offload a lot of the data to like Bigtable or, or something like that. So it's very interesting, these data problems. And, you know, the same same sort of experience I've had as you, which is, you know, I did a big data project at a former company of mine. I was acquired by Mattel and, you know, we basically had a wearable baby monitor and we tracked a bunch of different data points. And, and our whole feature was that we can predict when babies would wake up, we can give parents recommendations of when to take a nap. And I think about how, you know, how in the world would I do this as Web3? Because, you know, we were doing like a petabyte of, of data, you know, yeah. every like 60 days. So, you babies know, they're unpredictable. You're telling me you were able to <laughs> predict yeah. when they'd wake up. Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty decent. Yeah. We, Which we brand? monitored the room conditions and, you know, all that. Yeah. It launched into the Fisher Price brand. So exciting. It, you know, it was a big giant IOT infrastructure ran all across the world. We actually launched, uh, first in China. So, you know, I'm familiar with that Chinese infrastructure and things like that. So it was pretty exciting, but no way could something like that, I think, be done in a web three way, even though you might want it to be web three because it's a lot of personal data and you would definitely want that private. Uh, definitely some challenges, some some things to look forward to figuring out how how we're going to solve some of this stuff in a Web three. And quite frankly, some things we might not even you know ever be able to solve, which is you know like an Uber Eats problem. If that was completely decentralized and a customer had a problem with their order, you know there have to be a lot of work spent to sort of build the proper incentives and proper mechanisms to deal with that in a decentralized manner. So yeah, accountability is always a super interesting question. Yeah. So, so how'd you make the switch from, you know, big data into crypto? I mean, you know, you had a good successful project on Solana, like you said, called Strata. How'd that all come about? How'd you, you know, go from big data engineer to smart contract developer? Well, I blame my brother. So this was, yeah, I think 2021, January 2021. I was still working at Akuna. I actually loved my job there. Um, had just, you know, got leadership of a team. Like, I was loving the job there. My brother went and he started working at Solana. And this was like really, really early Solana. Um, and he tells me, you know, I should come over. Um, and he always does this. I've done startups with him before. He just like, you know, voiced in my ear. Um, but I said no. And I kept saying no as Solana just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I saw... Like he was working on what is now Metaplex. So he like wrote the NFT standard on Solana. It was just like some really cool stuff. And I knew it was written in Rust. And I knew a ton of data infrastructure was like going towards Rust. So I was like, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll just, you know, weekend project. I want to learn Rust. So I'll start messing around with Solana so that I can learn Rust. And that was really it. Like I just wanted to learn Rust. And so I, you know, at the time, my brother was messing around with BitClout, which is now DSO, and I thought it was a cool idea, but I actually thought the decentralized social network aspect of it, the like trying to build Twitter aspect of it was 
a little bit too ambitious and it was going to be really hard for them to actually take users away from Twitter. So it's like, I'll just build a little toy app that allows you to create tokens on Solana and then just overlay them on Twitter. So you can just like create a token for somebody's profile on Twitter. And that was kind of my example project because I'm a very strong believer that if you want to learn anything, reading isn't going to help you. You have to like actually do something. And then, you know, I was showing him that he showed people at Solana. They showed their friends. Uh, he told me to put it in a hackathon. So I started putting in a hackathon. All of a sudden I was getting hit up by like VCs and I don't know, it just like it snowballed and it snowballed so quickly. And that like the month of, I think it was May was just insane because I was working like, you know, 40, 50 hour weeks at Akuna. And then I'd come home and be working 40, 50 hour weeks on, you know, the side project. And it just kind of like, it took a life of its own. And eventually I had to, you know, pick one. Um, but I had always wanted to do a startup with myself as the founder. So I was like, all right, let's <laughs> let's do it um, and kind of made the jump. And then, uh, you know, crewed mine uh, as a code founder. Awesome. It sounds great because you came in sort of as an entrepreneurial approach to this former developer taking on something new. I love Rust. I've been using Rust for a long time. And for those that don't know, Rust is a systems programming language that has a lot of memory safety guarantees unlike C and C++, which plague a lot of problems and are responsible for a lot of security issues. Uh, it seems like a lot of blockchains are being built in Rust, or in the case of Solana, the smart contract uh, language is actually built on Rust. And even if you look at you know Aptos, which they have their move language, which is looks a lot like Rust as well. So Rust is kind of a language that is definitely making a lot of big inroads in blockchains. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense for blockchains because... Um, you are so heavily resource constrained and it's so good at managing resources. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, before Russ, I was doing a lot of Go development. And so, you know, I ran into garbage collection pauses and, you know, pretty busy systems and coming to Rust, even though it was a bit of a learning curve, you know, the, the, the memory safety and just the low amount of overhead that everything has is just incredible. So you get such a massive performance boost. And when I look at, you know, a Go program that was maybe, you know, taking a ton of memory, maybe, you know, could be, could be as high as like several hundred megabytes of memory. I look at Rust and it's using like 11 megabytes of memory and barely cracking the CPU. It's, you know, it's pretty impressive. But again, you know, there is a bit of a learning curve. I think a lot of the framework and tooling is, is getting much better. So it's, it's becoming a lot easier. And definitely in the blockchain world, you know, if you're coming from Solidity, it's definitely a bit of a culture shock. But, you know, having a language that is useful outside of a smart contract is pretty good because you invest in that language, you learn it, uh, you can use it on Web2 projects, you can use it on a bunch of projects. So I, I like the idea of using a kind of a more off the shelf language for some of these things, even though, uh, you know, it may be challenges to learning it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, if I'm any evidence, it's certainly a good recruiting tool because I probably yeah. wouldn't have touched it if it were Solidity. If Solana were Solidity, I wouldn't have touched it. I wanted to learn Rust. So it kind of, you know, started getting me in there. Yeah, definitely. Have, have you worked on any other blockchains besides Solana? Or are you just, it's, you know, loyal because it's all in the family, it seems like. No, I actually started at one point, again, weekend projects. I learned Solidity and started deploying some programs on uh, Ethereum just because, like, I wanted to know how it how it works, right? Um, I actually wrote a blog while I was at Strata on like how composability works on Solana versus how it works on Ethereum. Because I feel like if you don't do that, you're 
you're kind of missing all of the lessons of who came before you. Uh, for sure. And it seems like, you know, the EVM is replicated in a lot of different chains as well to try and bring some sort of, you know, I guess, quick on-ramping on a new blockchain. So yeah, it's interesting, but I definitely, yeah, I definitely like Rust. I got to check out Move. I haven't really checked that out yet, but you know, I'll have a look at that at some point. Yeah. I mean, the biggest, the biggest rug pull of them all was that you actually, you don't have to know that much Rust to program on Lana. Um, I was hoping I would learn like deep systems level rust, but really what you end up learning is like Solana's accounts model, um, everything around that. And like the amount of rust that you have to do is like, you know, understanding how to do arithmetic and handle pointers, but it's not really deep rust. Um, so I ended up having to go learn that on my own as well. Yeah. Well, build some large scale applications. Like, you know, at Blockjoy, we use rust and we use it for systems level stuff. We use it for backend stuff. If I can use it on the front end, which we could probably, I, I would definitely uh, use it. And yeah, it's, it's just one of, one of those languages I think is really truly a full stack language. You could pretty much use it anywhere. You know, it has a lot of high level language features, you know, with generics and, and things like this. And so you get some cool high level language feel to it and you get all the performance and speed of a low level language, which is fantastic. All right. So Strata was acquired by the Helium Foundation and it seems like now you're working on a new project. So tell us about that. What, what's going on there? It kind of made sense because they needed somebody to go build the, you know, Solana implementation of Helium. And there was weirdly a lot of overlap between what we had done at Strata and what we had done uh, or what needs to be done at Helium. So for example, at Strata, we had already kind of experimented with this idea of sub-DAOs where the sub-DAO token was tied via like a programmatic treasury, so a bonding curve um, to the, the main token. Um, we had actually done this with Grape on Solana. Um, and so, you know, that made it so we kind of had a groundwork to work on HIP51. Um, and so, you know- Can you, uh, can you tell our audience what HIP51 is? So HIP is a Helium Improvement Proposal. So yeah, tell us a little bit about HIP51 for those that are listening that aren't as familiar. Yeah, so HIP51, I guess some background on Helium. So he started out as an IoT network. So this is lower one. It's like a really, really high range, but uh, low throughput signal, um, which means you can like put down a, a router or hotspot. And I think it has like 15 kilometer range or something like that. Um, and it's really good because it doesn't consume very much power. So you can put, you know, sensors on a farm or, you know, temperature sensors, and you can have a battery in that thing that'll last for 10 years, but it's still broadcasting data to the internet, as opposed to if you did like Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or something where, you know, your phone only lasts like a day. And so Helium started out with this network and they, you know, built out, I think the largest coverage of any IoT network in the world. Um, but, you know, they hit this point where it's like, okay, we, you know, have covered the world in IoT. We're now trying to onboard a bunch of, you know, users onto IoT, so people like using the sensors, but the network still has room to grow. And so they started thinking, okay, how do we get other network types in there? How do we do 5G? How do we do Wi-Fi? How do we even do VPN? Um, and so you go from having this system of one token, which is just HNT, and all of the people who are providing the network mine HNT, and then people who are using the network burn HNT for data credits and then spend those data credits to use the network. So now this need for multiple tokens because you kind of have multiple DAOs and multiple sub DAOs. And so HIP51 moved Helium from just the HNT token 
to what is right now just one token, soon will be two, is the mobile token, which is 5G. And then that token is bound to Helium HNT sort of via this programmatic treasury. So um, as the as the mobile subdial burns data credits, it does work. It earns HNT, which goes into kind of a, a giant bucket that then people who hold mobile tokens are able to burn those mobile tokens for some amount of HNT if they want to. Um, so it's like effectively like a resting bid. And we had already kind of experimented with this kind of thing at Strata. So it was it was a good fit for our team to, you know, come on and build this. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So so essentially Helium is going from a single token network, basically an IoT network, to almost a network of wireless networks. Yes. So you can <laughs> plug in a bunch of different wireless networks. We make it expandable. So in the future, X, Y, and Z network can also potentially come on board. And we have a mechanism to support those. And those are all supported through what was affectionately known as a subdow. And the work that you did at Strata is being transferred over, or you're building on maybe the experience. I wouldn't say it's 100% transferred over, but building yeah, on that, that experience. There, but the idea yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the experience, like you said, it, you know, building at once. Oftentimes, the second time you build something, you know, all the things that you made or you did wrong are much, much better in the second version. So um, with that in mind, so now you're going to this sort of subdial model uh, that's proposed by HIP51. Um, I know that the blockchain was an L1 or is an L1 on Helium. It's written in Erlang, which is another interesting language. And I know it had some network outages. So I think part of the decision was to move to a different L1, I think for a variety of reasons. So as I understand it, uh, not only do we want to be able to have a much better tools for the subdown network and more programmatic ability to do things at a smart contract level, which the Helium network didn't support. But we also want to make that token easier for people to consume new exchanges and things like that. And so every time an exchange comes on board and wants to support, they have to basically run nodes for that L1 and they have to be able to support and integrate with that L1 through an API. But now it sounds like instead of using an API, they just hit a smart contract to get data out of it. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's uh, basically the smart contracts on Solana are, are effectively controlling like the token flow. And so like for exchanges or like wallet infrastructure providers, um, they might not even need to hit our smart contracts at all because these are just like normal SPL tokens. So like, you know, if you've listed uh, another SPL token, it's literally just like changing an address uh, to make your code work which is really nice. <laughs> for Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, you, but you probably get immediate access to, you know, 50 to 100 more exchanges right off the bat or any exchange that supports Solana, essentially. Yeah, and then we also, our tokens, you know, immediately get access to all of the utility that's built on Solana, which means like, uh, you know, we get all of the AMMs, all of the order books, and, you know, interesting things like, uh, you know, calculating your taxes on mining, you know, with a hotspot. Like, how do you do that? Well, like Solana is generally supported in a bunch of, you know, crypto tax calculators and they're able to, you know, figure out the price of the coin at the time that you got it. Um, so there's just like a lot of advantages to, you know, going on to an existing blockchain that has, you know, a ton of support. Yeah. Don't get me started on staking taxes. Oh my gosh. That's no, like, that's another me. podcast on its own. It's so terrible. Yeah. So th this is very interesting. It, it sounds super cool. Sounds like. Solana is bringing a lot to the table in, in terms of, you know, high transaction throughput, a lot of new functionality because it 
is a smart contract platform, as well as, you know, deep integration with exchanges because of the SPLT or the SPL tokens. And then in terms of the backend accounting, so, you know, the Helium network uses something called POC, uh, proof of coverage. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, wireless network stuff bits being moved around to actually determine when data credits are being used and data packets are being sent on the network and people are providing coverage. Like, how is that bit, how are those bits being handled currently? Yeah, so I think this is, it's kind of interesting because it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where like, you know, it, blockchain is a technology, but it can't scale to billions of users. And, and Helium hit this problem um, because blockchain tech, you know, tokens, they're a really, really good way to build a network that is actually owned by the people that are running the network. It did an amazing job of this. Meanwhile, all of the transactions to keep track of, you know, who should get what rewards and down to calculating who deserves rewards was all happening happening in like a completely blockchain-esque decentralized manner. And no surprises there, it started to hit scaling problems. Uh, and so you see outages and you see growing pains and things like that. Um, and so you kind of hit this point where it's like, there are some things that you would love to see completely decentralized, but like... It just doesn't work with the current technology. And so you need to take a step back and figure out, okay, how can we decentralize it? What is the the problem here? Like what what is doing, you know, way too much number crunching um, to be done decentral in a decentralized way? And yeah, for Helium, it was the, you know, this idea of packet routing and calculating all of these rewards, um, you know, in proof of coverage, it just got too expensive. But I don't think that means that it needs to be completely centralized either. Right. Um, and so that's where you enter this idea of oracles where it's like, OK, we've got this giant chunk of something that needs to happen. It's probably too much work for a blockchain to do. But what you can do is you can have multiple trusted entities running that same work. Um, and in fact, what I would like to see, actually, so, you know, it's going to start out with just the, um, you know, Helium and Nova running one. But we want to see, you know, more people running these oracles. But I also want to see different implementations of the oracle itself. Right. So that there's not just one canonical open source and does need to be open source. So it's transparent. There's not just one implementation of the Oracle. There are maybe, you know, multiple to make sure there's not mistakes in the rewards calculations. Kind of similar to Solana setting up Firedancer as a separate client, because now you get kind of more coverage. And so the idea is that you can kind of progressively decentralize these things. And yeah, it's not going to be as decentralized as a blockchain with, you know, thousands of validators, but uh, you know, at least you have high visibility. Everything is public about how these calculations are being made. And you have multiple entities that are in charge of it. So no one can basically, you know, try and screw you out of your rewards, basically. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so so in, in essence, it's like an L2, right? A roll-up type of uh, system doing some calculations. That, that being said, so how if, well, today there's an API that exposes a bunch. Not only does it exposed ledgers and wallets, but it also exposes the data that's surrounded by the POC, the challenges and things like that, because there's a bunch of folks that drill down into the data to, you know, look at performance and things. So how are they going to get access to that data today? Is that going to be more of a traditional web two type of application or in this new Oracle system? It's kind of a interesting combination of web two and web three. So um, all this data is 
obviously being collected so that we can run the reward um, and it goes into you know a, a data store so s3 but we're actually going to be taking that data from s3 and putting it into probably like rweave or shadow drive right um, and so the actual data the files representing you know the massive amounts of uh you know packet metadata we don't actually store the packets but just the metadata about them now become accessible to everybody via decentralized storage which is immutable uh and isn't going away um, so anybody can go through all of history and packet calculation and make sure that the oracles got the same value uh, that they expected. Got it. And then when you were talking about alternative implementation of the Oracle, I mean, it's written in Rust. So who's gonna, who's going to do the lesser version of it? You know, I suspect it being Go maybe, but yeah. That, yeah that's... I mean, this is, so this is pie in the sky and we definitely don't have time to do this yet, but what I would like to see and again, I haven't really looked into how that's done, but you know, I come from more of a traditional data processing background. So what I would like to see is something that you know simplifies it a bunch by using Spark or you know some open source data technologies that can scale horizontally. You know, run this over multiple workers. I think it'd be really interesting if we could actually get some traditional data analytics on top of this stuff, because then people can do you know aggregations over years of data. Yeah, there's a lot of cool streaming servers out there now. I mean, we always use Apache Flink, actually, because, mm -hmm. you know, Spark is basically micro batches. But yeah, this will be really interesting when we have accessible tools. Right now, everything in the Helium API just gets dumped into a big, giant Postgres database. Very hard to scale that from a data science perspective. So there's a ton of great tools for dumping data into different data analysis tools and systems. So yeah, it'd be exciting. Yeah, I think making this thing full streaming would be interesting because it's already kind of happening in micro batches because of the fact that things are just getting dumped into S3. So you'd have to kind of plug everything into Kafka instead. Would be a fun challenge. I'm up for it eventually, <laughs> but not right now. In terms of when you said earlier that, you know, some of these processing uh, abilities just are too much for blockchains. Do you, do you do you think it's more of a data storage problem, or do you think it's more of a sort of consensus networked uh, compute problem, or both? I think it's more a compute problem. So on Solana, at least, they're you know kind of pioneering this thing called compression, uh, which you know you basically compress everything into a Merkle tree, which is going to go way too far into the into the details, but effectively you can completely save on storage on the blockchain. Like you basically only need to store 32 bytes for something of any size. Um, but the problem is you still have this compute problem. Like in that world, you start treating the blockchain like an event bus um, and storage is separated from the blockchain, which is cool. This is how like, you know, Web2 is scaling. You separate the storage from the compute. Um, but the problem is the compute is still very, very limited. I mean, Solana is at 8,000 TPS, but a lot of those are voting because there's so many validators and it's so decentralized now. You know, I think maybe a thousand out of that 8,000 are actual, you know, transactions right now. Visa does, I think, 60,000 transactions per second. So we're a long, long way away from being able to handle, you know, the true scale of Web2. Yeah. What do you think the solution is? I mean, I, I think a lot of it is goes back to the old days of vertical versus horizontal scaling. Like everything that, you know, we did back in the dot-com was all about vertical scaling. Let's get bigger hardware, faster hardware, things like that. But now you see, you know, these, these systems where things are sharded across many different databases. And we hear, you know, Ethereum 
looking at like sharding or partitioning. What what do you see is in the future for Solana to sort of support higher transaction volumes? Yeah, so I mean, Solana is very much that vertical scaling effort, right? It's like, let's get as close to the hardware as possible, and then we can go as fast as possible. And honestly, it's it's got the best UX of any chain because of that. And so like one of the beautiful things about Web3 is that data isn't in these like little isolated ponds, right? It's all together, which means the composability is massive. I can go take NFTs from some other protocol and integrate them into my protocol. And as soon as you start introducing L2s and these little like separate bastions of state, now I can't compose anymore because the state I want is in a different shard. And then the whole interface with bridges is horrible, right? You have to wait 30 minutes or more for it to get bridged over. And then bridges are this massive attack vector. It's just like one of those things that just <laughs> it, it starts to eat at the the core of like, what, what do we even want with Web3? Because we just we completely lose all the composability if we start trying to scale the throughput. Um, and so I think the question comes down to then like, you know, not how do we scale to a million TPS, but instead what things need to be on the blockchain and what things don't. So I think it's really, really important that ownership is on the blockchain, right? Like all of your tokens are on the blockchain. All of your hotspots are on the, the blockchain. Like assets that I actually own, I own. But in the case of Helium, right? Like the rewards infrastructure is happening in Oracle's off-chain because we just, we knew it was too high volume to put on the chain. But you know, Helium has a million users or something like that. And users transferring around their hotspots, transferring around their tokens, even selling their tokens, like that's not going to hit 60,000 TPS. Like it's just not that much volume. So I think we need to be a little bit more selective about what we put on the blockchain. Like every time I tweet, shouldn't go through the blockchain, <laughs> at least now, right? Somebody might come up with some amazing technological advancement that allows us to scale horizontally. I am still holding out hope for that, but doesn't exist right now. I think there's some interesting takes here. Like with Cosmos, it's almost like you have app chain. So you have the SDK that is common. Uh, you get bridging kind of baked in, if you will. You know, Polkadot, I think, is interesting. But the problem is, is like the way the slots are auctioned off. It just seems silly to me. And again, I, I think I have the minority opinion here. But, you know, historically, I've been in, you know, I've been a software developer for over 20 years. And I've gone through the you know, the first dot com all the way through. So I've seen, you know, I've seen it all, but vertical always hits a limit no matter what. And when I look at this, and again, I, I, this is not the popular opinion, but I definitely think that this concept of an app chain, like if, if you could have a guaranteed SDK that works and then you can keep your data, but it is tightly integrated with every other app chain that's running on that ecosystem. It's very interesting, especially if you could tweak some of the calculations and stuff. I don't know, you know, what, what it's going to net out. I know that, you know, pure transaction volume seems to be the most important thing right now. I don't know, you know, when I look at Aptos and Sui, those all seem to be trying to be, be building a better version of Solana, but kind of the same vertical scaling. But if, if history has any say, vertical scaling will hit a, hit a ceiling no matter what. I mean, just historically, it always has. So. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. But in the meantime, like you said, you know, some of these problems maybe can only be solved by vertically scaling. Quite frankly, some problems might not ever be solved by blockchain. Um, you know, I think that the way that we're going with vertical scaling is we're going to start building purpose-built hardware, which does a lot of this stuff. Uh, but again, you know, that, that could be very expensive. And even in the past when people built very expensive 
hardware like supercomputers and, and things like this. And, you know, back in the VAX days and the Cray days and stuff. And so they had these, you know, beefy hardware, but at the point, you know, the cost is so high. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Just me having, <laughs> having been through this before, I kind of, I definitely have a minority opinion about it, but uh, you know, I've seen history repeat itself quite a bit in, in tech, so I, it'll be interesting. I would love to see that work, right? Like, I would love to see the horizontal scaling play work. I think the hardest part to get right with that is the composability. Yeah. If someone can figure that out, yeah, then the app chains will be perfect. There's also just like, I mean, Helium is acutely aware of this. Running your own chain sucks. Like, you know, you're on call all the time. Yeah, but it was break. also, to yeah, to be fair, it was built from scratch on Erlang. So already, yeah. I think, you know, Erlang's a great a great language. But the, the problem is, is that the things that you get out of Erlang, like message passing and the, the distributed compute, none of that is really usable in this kind of scenario. Um, so, yeah, so I, it would be interesting to know if they had started off with Rust or C++ or C, like where or how long it would it would go on before it kind of hit the wall. Definitely think it would hit a wall for sure. I definitely think that, you know, migrating a lot of this stuff to kind of an L2 is, is the right move. And de- yeah, in time will tell. But again, back to your, your take, the composability is, is probably the most important thing for developer experience right now and be able to quickly build and, and, you know, build usable functionality today that's the easiest way to go. But like you said, you know, the bridges between these things are, are very rough. The only way is if, you know, you're using a common SDK that's been tried and vetted and it's all baked into that. But then again, who knows? Yeah, the time constraints so. start to become a problem. And like, yeah, it's just, the design space is very different when you need to take an action and wait 10 minutes versus take an action and wait a second. Um, and yeah. you just feel it like, like as a developer, right? I mean, even like, even from like a UI developer perspective, you're like, okay, I can do a spinner for one second versus like, you know, something like ETH that's going to take, you know, minutes and minutes to settle. It's like, all right, we'll email you when it's done. <laughs> yeah. Mo- most of the, like the goal for web two is always been, you know, you want a response in less than 30 milliseconds. Uh, usually 23 is like the magic number. Um, or else, you know, it becomes noticeably slow. So there you have it. I mean, we're, we're still far away, but again, I think that these are the challenges that are drawing us technical folks to it because they're tough, tough challenges to solve. And I don't think any of us have a clear idea of how to solve it, but I, I definitely believe that we'll figure it out at some point. Yeah, we'll have someone, you know, we'll have like a Richard Hendricks from Silicon Valley. He'll just magically. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. The perfect example. So coming back to Web3 and your definition, you know, Web3 is really utility, is decentralized. Are there any Web3 projects out there, even on other chains or what have you, that really look interesting to you? Is there anything that you want to share with the the listeners that, hey, go check this out? I don't know if listeners are going to be interested, but I think one of the coolest uh, things on Solana is that it's able to handle a central limit order book. Just because I'm coming from that like trading background, um, I think they're a lot better than AMMs in a lot of ways. Um, but like right now, OpenBook kind of requires a crank, um, and so there's this giga brain on Solana uh, named Jerry. Uh, some people call him Professor, and he's building this thing called Phoenix under uh, Ellipsis Labs, and it's this like crankless order book where he's just like he's he's one of these like brilliant people from high frequency trading platforms and he's Gene just come Street. to yeah. yeah i think he came from citadel uh and he's okay. just like 
optimizing the shit out of it. It's um, going to be pretty interesting if he can get it shipped. He's also the guy that uh, came up with compression on Solana. So he's just, he's a, he's a very smart guy and I'm interested to, to see what he does. Um, but you know, the devil's going to be in the details, you know, you got to go from like the academic definition of how this thing works to like actually getting it and scaling it out. I think that could be really interesting for crypto if you can actually have a viable, uh, order book. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we, you know, you mentioned, uh, DSO a little bit earlier, we had DSO on recently. Um, so yeah, definitely exciting to see a bunch of projects coming out. Um, with that, you know, I, I thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really great to get your insight. We wanted to talk a little bit about governance, but we kind of ran out of time. Uh, so maybe I'll bring you back. But it's great to hear about, you know, as a developer and just kind of how you got into it and some of the challenges that have been headed your way. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Definitely. Thanks, everybody, for listening to today's episode, WTF Web 3, where we figure out the utility from the bullshit. Thank you. Thank you.